everyone. Welcome to today's episode of MD Talk. I'm LaQuinta Jernigan with MD Group, and today I am very excited to be joined by the co-founders of Eightfold Governance, Adam Spinks, Director of Governance and Legal Affairs, and Lyndon Johnson, CEO. As a team, Eightfold Governance have almost 100 years combined experience in the UK health sector and provide end-to-end services for health technology companies, including information governance, compliance, clinical safety, software development, and more. With a background in law and IT, Adam has supported the strategic and operational needs of NHS commissioning organizations and providers across multiple sectors. Throughout his career, Adam has supported many health technology providers to design, develop, and implement their products across the UK health service to improve patient care and service delivery. Lyndon has a wealth of knowledge in health technology and has played key tactical and strategic roles in scaling businesses in the sector. Lyndon's extensive clinical and managerial experience in primary, secondary, community, and private health care has given him a deep understanding of the needs and challenges faced by health technology startups and getting products to market. Adam and Lyndon, welcome to MD Talk. Lovely to be here. Thank you very much. Hi, LaQuinta. Awesome. So today, um, the three of us, we're going to be discussing a hot topic, or actually several hot topics within one topic of technology that um, the industry is very much interested in, and that's the digital transformation of the healthcare industry, the challenges that rapid advancement in technology presents, and why compliance, good governance, and patient centricity is so important when it comes to the technologies that we adopt. At MD Group, we are always focused on how we can harness technology to improve the patient experience and support clinical trial innovation. And we've created our own technologies to support our services. And as huge advocates of digital transformation, we're also aware of its many challenges. So I am so looking forward to diving deeper into this subject today with both of you. In order to lay the foundation for why this topic is so important right now, um, I'm just going to share a few statistics. The U.S. digital health market was valued at $195 billion in 2021 and is on course for 16% annual growth between now and 2023. The first half of 2020 saw unprecedented investment in digital health activity, including record-level venture funding of $5.4 billion. And the pandemic has accelerated tech adoption by HCPs and patients. For example... At the end of 2019, less than 200,000 people were using the NHS app in the UK. But by the end of 2020, the app had almost 2 million users. So clearly, this space is hot. And it's important that we talk about these topics so that we can make sure that when we are bringing in new technologies um, to support clinical research, we're bringing in technologies that have the right compliance regulatory um, and governance um, due diligence in place. So let's let's jump right into this discussion. Why is getting governance and compliance right so important for health tech innovators? And when should they start thinking about this? For these innovators, they need to be uh, baking right into the heart of the company, good governance, and compliance, and in particular, clinical safety. Uh, we, we encourage our clients to think about their role as a founder um, in terms of a Hippocratic Oath as much as anything else. So do no harm. Um, with the tradition with health technology companies, 
and a fashionable tradition is to move fast and break stuff. That's you, you just cannot do that with, with patients involved. Patient safety has to be at the absolute heart of that. So um, we're seeing a range of governance and compliance standards and activities, both in the UK uh, and in Europe and across, uh, across the world. So we, uh, we, we believe that it's, it's very important to get right from the start, the Quinta. There's also been quite a few um, sort of quite high profile issues uh, that have come to light over over the years where people haven't got it right. And I think that's something else that people need to be mindful of um, is that the the, the level of of profile around health tech is is very, very high. And and even outside of the health tech in in the sort of tech industry in general, there's an awful lot of concern and, uh, and people worried about how data is being used, who it's being shared with, how much is being collected and what it's being used for. Um, And so in addition, to the, the clinical safety, which is obviously the, the first and foremost in anything, um, there's also an element of trust. It's very easy to, to to lose people's trust and quite difficult to gain it. And so, yeah, how how people's you know the most confidential, sensitive information that, that you know that, you know that, that there is about people, their health data, uh, you know, need, needs to be needs to be looked after. Really, I'd add to that and say that. Uh, when these health technology companies, quite often they're founded by technologists. Sometimes uh, clinicians are the technologists and sometimes they're working alongside the technologists. But um, for the for the technologists, they would do well to just consider the compliance and governance aspects at the start of the journey. Um, I think quite often we see clients ready to go to market they've been and visited the hospital they've been to the hospital department they've they've shown the clinicians what their technology is and at the at that stage when they're starting to talk about contracts and doing deals it's only at that stage that they realize they need the right clinical safety uh, and compliance documentation right information governance documentation uh, and that's where uh, uh, quite often we get a call saying you know how quickly can you bring me up to speed? How quickly can you get X, Y, Z done for us? So um, we, we do spend quite a lot of time these days with companies at, at seed stage uh, or, or Series A rounds where they're trying to plan out their journey towards building their product and going to market. It's good for companies to consider the costs and effort that's required on the governance and compliance activities at that stage. And I think it's probably also worth mentioning that we do quite often, it's much harder to uh, to help someone out when they've already already been on that journey and, and developed their software, got ways of working in place um, and sort of uh, trying to retrofit or, or reverse engineer things in uh, at a later stage is much more challenging than it is to, to have started on the right foot, have the right foundations in place. Because the governance and compliance isn't just about having the right paperwork in place. It's not a tick box exercise. It's about living and breathing and doing these things day to day and making sure that actually the way the technology has been designed, the way it works and the way it's going to be used all lend itself to safe, well-governed, uh, transparent ways of working so that uh, people can build that confidence in the in the technology and, and know that it's uh, there for, for their benefit and, and there isn't anything slightly uh, untoward going on under the surface, should we say? Yeah, Adam, you just read my mind because I was just going to say that, you know, for these types of um, individuals, the innovators, the technologists who want to move fast and break stuff, often they can see, you know, taking the time to build this in is 
delaying going to market, um, costing a lot of upfront money, but in reality, doing it after the fact, once the product's already developed, it's going to probably take them even longer um, and disrupt their plan even further, probably even cost more money. So it's important that you slow down and try to bring this type of um, insight and consultancy in from the start. So what are the biggest risks and challenges that digital transformation and adoption of new technology presents to the healthcare sector? I mean, we just talked about, you know, the fact that you have to have all of these different components in place before you you launch a product or else you're going to have problems down the line. But what are some of the other other risks and challenges that you see? It's a really interesting question, LaQuinta. And I uh, when, when I when I first thought about that question, my first answer to that would be, what are the risks and challenges to the healthcare sector in terms of how it may disrupt? Well, not how it will disrupt, but how it will disrupt the, the healthcare sector. So the US and the UK uh, healthcare markets are quite different, I think, I believe. Uh, and and with, the, with the UK markets, you have certainly quite a patriarchal model of care. Uh, the, the, the healthcare practitioners, the doctors and nurses, um, they they see themselves as the guardians of the patients. Uh, so health technology for that sort of system is only going to be beneficial. You're trying to empower patients. You're trying to uh, encourage people to take part and, and, and be a member of their own healthcare team, if you like. To a healthcare system that is built around um, delivering care at a cost to patients, it may be highly disruptive because what you're trying to do is you're trying to upskill patients, you're trying to uh, provide them with data and, and information about their own conditions for them to be able to better self-care. So for good organisations that are th looking to the future and thinking, you know, what can we do apart from uh, provide access to healthcare appointments, provide simply medications from um, from an industry perspective to go beyond the pill. There is a lot, an awful lot that can be done, but it will disrupt the sector undoubtedly. So if we think just simply about patients inputting their own data, machine learning algorithms, AI, uh, coupled with wearables, and then you think coupling that with genomics, you, you know, the landscape is going to be entirely different in not that many years time really so when i think about uh, radiographers and radiologists uh, or, or, or people taking tests that, that, that a human being would be reviewing uh, m many of those activities will be taken over by technology in the not so distant future i would say so i i, I think Culturally in the UK, where we still have this kind of doctor knows best, the, the healthcare system encourages patients to go back cap in hand, to be told what to do. Uh, there are many advantages to empowering patients with data, which is often what technology is doing. Um, the other thing that I would say is that I think people are very used to experiencing highly efficient workflows, whether it be when they visit the airport, when they... Uh, try and book a cinema ticket, a seat uh, in a restaurant. We, we, we're very used to being able to interact with our technology. Um, in the UK at the moment, not so much. <laughs> and it's it, it's not desperately difficult to uh, imagine scenarios where you can go onto your phone, you can book your appointment, you can change your appointment, you can um, read reviews of doctors or clinicians or professionals and the care that they've delivered and uh, uh, encourage choice in those arenas. So I, I think 
in in terms of how the sector may disrupt be, be disrupted, it's it's not if but when, uh, and and I think the challenges are many, uh, but the benefit is huge in in the long run um, because I think the more people the, the the closer that people are bought to their own healthcare via technology, the better. I think there's some practical challenges as well because those are sort of really big picture stuff, which you know you need to have a, a, a one eye on that side of things to get that, you know, get get that technology that you know the right solutions to the the problems that exist. But I think even you know at the sort of slightly more pointy end where you're actually introducing um, technology, I think one of the challenges that that there is is actually getting the technology into the right place. And some of the some of the challenges there are partly around. Um, the, 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 those who are looking to implement it, so the actual healthcare provider organisations and then the, the health tech companies, not always talking the same language or even necessarily being aware of the same, uh, the, all of the things that people need to be worried about. So something we've we've certainly seen is um, you know, there'll be, there'll be organisations that we've, we've worked with who perhaps have got all of their... Um, yeah, their, their data protection side of things, their information security, all absolutely nailed down, and and, and think they're they're ready to go. But but then when we when we sort of uh, delve a bit deeper, we realise that they you know, they haven't necessarily thought in detail about clinical safety or how to how to necessarily evidence and demonstrate it. And it's not necessarily that it's not being done; it's that it's not necessarily been surfaced in a way that the those who are looking to implement it will expect to see. And then that can lead to a bit of a breakdown and slow slow the implementation or the adoption of this technology simply because. All people almost talking at cross purposes. So again, sort of having a nice common language and a common way of of of, of understanding how technology works, how it's been developed in a safe and appropriate way. Make sure everyone's really comfortable with that. What's going in is actually going to be a benefit and not have any sort of unintended consequences. Is is really quite important. Essentially, you have technology that is available to consumers. They can download these technologies from app stores. Some of this technology might be able to be linked to. Uh, medical devices that the patient is wearing. I'm thinking of Freestyle Libra, for example, a a, uh, a means by which uh, type 1 diabetics can monitor their blood sugars. So a question for the healthcare system is, which of these technologies can be trusted? So in the UK, we have a, a, a concept called DTAC, which, is, which stands for Digital Technology Assessment Criteria. And it's a range of domains that cover clinical safety, information governance, cybersecurity, interoperability, usability and accessibility. So it is up to the health technology companies to prove to the healthcare providers that this technology is safe to use. And that's a lot of the work that we get involved in. We often take on that role for these companies. And we have a neat way of demonstrating this to the healthcare providers by essentially putting all of their evidence for their DTAC into a portal and providing the health technology companies with a link that they can instantly send a link to the hospital, to the healthcare system. Um, and that allows the healthcare system to review and recommend or not recommend this kind of technology to their patients. That's great because I think that um, I love the way, Lyndon, you first turned that question around because I think that you're right. This movement of utilizing more digital health technology um, within the industry and in clinical research does have the potential to be a huge disruptor. Um, and patients are going to have more access to their, their medical records than ever before, to understanding their conditions than ever before, and in having a say in their treatment path. And I think that in order for patients to 
feel comfortable with that amount of data going through these different systems. Like there has to be an an educational component, I think, not just amongst sponsors and purchasers of the tech, but the users too, so that they can understand the types of of scrutiny that this technology has undergone, um, that there is the correct data privacy laws being adhered to, et cetera, because there's a lot of data and that, that has... The, the, the potential, like with all this data, there's so much power, you know, and, and patients will have so much more, um, just the, the access alone will give them so much more control of their, their, their patient journey. But at the same time, there's that fear of like, all of my data is just going through these companies um, in this tech. And, and what does that mean for me? Is it protected? Um, and in the day and age that we live in, where there are so many, you know, hacks all the time of data, um, and it being used and not the most compliant ways. I mean, that's going to be a top concern for consumers and patients um, as we enter this new era. Yes. And I, and I think you make a, a really valid point there, LaQuinta. If, if you stand back far enough from it, what's reassuring about this is that we're seeing a journey towards the democratization of data and not away from it. So if you think about what's interesting, perhaps to some of your listeners, you know, is it possible to ask patients can I anonymously access your data? Can you tell me how you're feeling on this new medication or this new treatment or this new device? Because that's what's really important. It's not, I think we're moving away from um, simply clinical trial data and, and, and much more into a space where, you know, can you please tell me, do you feel better using these interventions that I provided you with? The models of care that are emerging and the models of data management are now more geared towards uh, the kind of questions that you might get asked on a website, which is, are you happy to share your data when uh, a technology company like Apple or Microsoft asks you to feed, are you happy to feedback when this thing hasn't worked? And whatever that may be, I think what's important for society in, uh, at large in this space is that uh, patients are empowered to share their data with whom they want and to have the access controls to be able to dial up or dial down um, what data they're sharing with some of the people that are providing their care or providing their devices or their drugs based on um, their trusted relationship with those clients. Uh, and, And I think that's very reassuring. It's ultimately an ethical question, isn't it? That's what it comes down to is, you know, how do you ethically make sure that you're, you're, you're accessing and using information in ways that people understand, that they're happy with and that they can control in some way? And generally speaking, um, there, there's been some really interesting research done in the UK around uh, people's attitudes to data sharing um, for their own care and more broadly for sort of the greater good, I suppose. And actually what, peop- what the, the findings tend to show is that when people are when people understand what it's being used for when it's clearly explained to them and they can understand either the benefits to themselves or to society or to other people who are potentially suffering from the same conditions that they are they're normally quite you know quite happy to share their data in fact they often uh, it's something that they're really keen to try and facilitate the challenge often comes when it's not always clear what it's being used for and how that's being done and that's when people get a bit nervous about it 
And so I definitely think there's there's an an element of transparency there, and and and, and sometimes when you are talking with people uh, about how they're planning to use data, and you say we well, you know, we need to be trying to be transparent with people and explain to them, um, sometimes the conversation comes around to if you're a bit nervous about telling people what you're doing with their data, perhaps you shouldn't be doing it in the first place. So there's there's almost that 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 you know there's that sort of sunlight being the best disinfectant almost where you know if you are able to be completely transparent and explain to people what it's being used for and the benefits. Um, people are normally much happier to share it. So uh, a, a, a reluctance for people to share it and allow their data to be used for other things is normally a symptom of a lack of transparency or a lack of honesty or a lack of trust. So, yeah, it all comes back around to that sort of trust trust point and ethics, I think. Yeah, I think that's a very, very valid point. Um, and, you know, as we kind of have shifted to talking about users and patients, users of the technology, um, you know, digital literacy levels still vary considerably nationally and globally. So what do we need to consider as an industry as we face, you know, the, all of these challenges of new technologies in making healthcare feel inaccessible for some people? Because the technology is supposed to make it more accessible, but it can have the opposite effect if we're not careful. Yeah, I, I think there's been there's quite a lot of research around this, Laquinta. Obviously, um, I, I think that there are obviously people in different situations that may not be able to access the technology, uh, or um, may not be able to understand the permissions they're giving, or in in many different scenarios. Uh, so one of the companies that, in fact, the first health technology company that I worked for when I left uh, working for the health service in the UK had quite, uh, you know, it's not a catch-all solution to that problem, but it's quite an interesting solution that I that I am supportive of. And that's, they, they, they democratised the data by asking the patients to have a copy of their own health record. They, they, they were essentially copying the data from the hospital to a patient portal that the patient had access permissions on. And what that enabled was a scenario whereby a patient could invite, if they weren't capable of, of, of accessing the data or acting on the data, there's quite often a member of the family or a carer uh, or somebody in their circle of care, if you like, who is capable of doing that. And it may be a professional as well. But if you're if you're in if you're in charge of a copy of your own data, you can quite easily then delegate access to the family member, the carer, the son, the daughter, the the, the best friend, who can act on your behalf. Um, and I think that's quite a neat, neat solution. Again, it comes back to the democratization of data. It kind of flips that patriarchal model of care on its head, whereby you, you know you're leveraging the advantages of the circle of care that already exists around the patient. So. It is one way we can move forward in that space, but I, I think the direction of travel, not just in healthcare, but in all sectors of our life, you know, <laughs> the bank branches are closing, um, the, 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 the different access to different people is changing to online and via devices, and that, that's a much bigger problem, of course. I think there's also, uh, it's, it's worth thinking about some of the, the sort of more 
practical things that sometimes um, technologists can do to make the the adoption of what might otherwise be quite scary technology that little bit easier. I mean, even down to simple things like trying to come up with consistent ways of presenting technology to people, how common interfaces, common uh, menu items and things like that, so that hopefully if people are having to use multiple pieces of technology, there's not this steep learning curve on how to use it. So again, uh, in in the UK in particular, there is a sort of drive to try and use um, patterns and, and, and and common look and feel around healthcare apps so that hopefully when someone's it's actually a lot of it's based around the NHS app which you mentioned at the top of the top of the show where um, you know getting that sort of look and feel of the NHS app and in all of these different technology means that hopefully when people are interfa- uh, you know interfacing with this technology it's not quite so scary it looks similar to that thing they used the other day or last week or last month and so again that that learning curve is much much shallower um, and so adoption you know, the barriers to adoption are that much lower so that's something else that that people can think about in how they actually design and present this stuff in a way that's as accessible as possible right i think just just as another good example i've seen because it's you know what another thing that's important with this technology is that we don't end up with people being isolated or not being able to kind of uh, meet in community if you like uh, or, or at home just kind of at home or alone with their conditions so i have seen some cancer centers where people can drop in, they can have a coffee, they can attend groups, they can talk to other people. But I've seen those sorts of centres provide support staff to help explain people how to access that sort of technology. And they might use an iPad, they might walk people through, they might um, sit sit the patient or the client down with them and and help them answer the questions or organise their care. So there's a learning element there. It's just about who are the who who are the people that are best placed um, to support that sort of work? And quite often, it's the charities and patient advisory groups. I would argue, rather than professional healthcare settings. Yeah, that's a that's an excellent point because um, the use of technology can't just replace the the need for human touch and human care when it comes to patient care. And there has to be options for those who need that interaction to still have that interaction. And for those who don't need it and are fine to carry on with the technology um, in isolation, they they can have that as well. But we need to consider both. Um, so let's switch for a moment uh, from patients as users to the other users of technology, because we also need to ensure all stakeholders, including site administrators, nurses, healthcare professionals, that they're all confident in using technology. Are you finding that the health industry in the UK is embracing all of these new technologies more than resisting them? I think that it depends on the technology, LaQuinta. So uh, frontline clinicians are, are quite famous for- to cut into the chase, <laughs> I would say, uh, you know, a lot of my clinical life was spent in A&E and intensive care units uh, and these sorts of settings. Now, uh, particularly uh, given that what we just, everybody's just been through with COVID and the pandemic and so on, uh, when if you're, if you're coming to these healthcare professionals with an ask, and that ask is to change the accepted clinical pathway to something involving technology, Go to them fully prepared. Uh, have your ducks lined up. Have have everything in a row where you can be talking to these professionals and say, what I'm asking you to do is relatively simple. I'm just asking you to offer this application to this patient. I'm asking you to uh, be involved in consenting for them to be 
offered a download or whatever it may be. So it's about the adoption because if you go to them wasting their time or having not really thought through the deployment of the technology or the information governance uh, issues around patients sharing their data or not be able to fully explain who that data might be shared with or whether the thing is safe, uh, then, you know, you're not going to get many chances because these people are normally super, super busy and super, super pushed. So it, it needs to be explained in a way that's going to make, most importantly, their patients' lives easier and better because healthcare professionals will nearly always engage with an activity um, that will help the people that they're looking to serve, but also in a way that's, that's not going to upset their workflow. And, and it's always difficult. Change is always difficult, but some of these people are staying very late just to keep the place safe, let alone uh, deploying the technology they're being asked to deploy. And actually, there's there's also um, the, the the side of things to look at. We, there's there's a lot of parallels with the patient issue in terms of you know accessing uh, technology and things like that. Something which I I've come across in in, in actually fairly recently with a, a few people we work with is realizing that the the actual ability to access the technology within healthcare environments the availability of smart devices smartphones tablets things like that um it, the, the infrastructure isn't always there and sometimes there's an assumption that everyone's walking around with a smartphone in their pocket and that smartphone can be used to support patient care and actually if a, if an organization hasn't got a, a bring your own device policy and actually that device that's in that clinician's pocket isn't really safe and secure for use with you know supporting patient care and uh, th then that can be a, 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 a barrier to actually adopting the technology. So I think I think there's a technologists also need to be mindful about what the the limitations and and, and the constraints are in a healthcare environment, um, and not to mention things like um, infection control with with devices and things like that. You know, walking around with a, a smartphone that you know handing them between clinicians and stuff in a in a clinical environment. There's all of these broader things which actually sometimes catch people out. Where you know you feel like being able to adopt the same same approach you've used for booking a cinema ticket or <laughs> a, a restaurant seat, as we spoke about earlier. Um, you know, it doesn't always quite translate directly into a healthcare setting. So making sure that the right devices are available, the right Right connectivities there and also looking at solving a whole problem for people that's something else that again I think you know being able to shoehorn technology into just one aspect of someone's life can feel quite uh, you know, a, a bit disjointed and a bit, bit bit abrupt but actually being able to solve an entire problem from start to finish where the technology sort of seamlessly um, augments what they're doing as opposed to you know being just a sort of you know something that's stuck on to the to the edge of it uh, that's something else that's worth considering as well i think for technologists solving that entire problem not just one aspect of it i i think one of the one of the areas where our clients find our support valuable is that we have all everybody within the business has worked on both sides of the fence so um adam has lots of experience supporting the NHS at scale with information governance. I've worked frontline clinician, you know, and, and, and senior management within the NHS before we started supporting technology companies or companies doing due diligence or industry or whoever it may be. Because sometimes people make the mistake that if the technology works okay on their side of the fence, i.e. they can sit within their offices and they can connect it to Wi-Fi and they can uh, receive the various permissions, uh, sometimes hospitals are very, very different environments. They might have all kinds of firewalls and information governance hurdles and policies that the minute that you try and connect it to the hospital Wi-Fi or the minute that the doctor or the nurse is trying to access it via their browser on their desktop, 
that may still be one running a very, very old version of Windows. It, it, it could be quite different. And it's that kind of domain expertise that uh, can sometimes make the difference between a successful and a non-successful deployment. Yeah, and I think these are all tips that technologists need because, like, you know, to, to add this point, so making sure it's solving a bigger picture problem and not just one little thing. Because one of the biggest um, complaints I often hear from sites is just the sheer amount of technology and platforms that they have to access uh, for, for a patient or for one clinical trial. It's a lot. Um, and it can be quite cumbersome for a very busy study coordinator to see patients, to log all this data and to access all of these systems. So again, just thinking about that, that overall user experience and, and all the different things that they have on their plates and how this piece of technology can, again, solve a bigger picture problem and not just an add-on. There's some really interesting work that I was involved in with some some shared care records. And one of the things, again, this is such a such a, a, a silly point, but it was amazing just how crucial to the to the success it was. So the shared care record they rolled out, it required an additional username and password for people to access it. And for months and months and months, it was trundling along at sort of like hundreds of users a, a month, things like that going into this, despite the, the value of the data and how fantastically helpful it was when people did access it to patient care, the hurdle to actually getting to it meant it was hardly used. They'd moved to a single sign-on approach where people didn't have to use an additional username and password. They could authenticate using what they, they already had. And I think um, uh, I think use, use of the system went up overnight, up something like six, seven hundred percent so it was just absolutely exploding it was purely it wasn't that the system was no good it wasn't that it didn't solve a problem it was just that there was that initial barrier to to, to entry or to access um, and, and it just exploded overnight with that one small change so again understanding what some of the pain points are and what's going to drive adoption and equally what's going to be a barrier to it and trying to make sure that that sort of stuff's built in um, it is quite uh, shocking how, how how much of a difference little things like that can actually make exactly I would just say my, my key message to anybody trying to do this is come back to the value that it's delivering to the patients. If you, if you come back to that, the healthcare professionals and practitioners will get involved if they think there is value to their patient in using the systems. Yeah, absolutely. My next question we already touched on a little bit earlier um, and in our previous um, conversation, but I'm hoping we can elaborate because there are so many, um, there are still so many people that are suspicious of new technology from the perspective of data protection and monitoring. So can you elaborate a little bit more on how you work with tech companies to ensure the challenges of gathering, storing, and processing vast amounts of data are addressed? Yeah, well, that that's that's my bread and butter. That one, so uh, <laughs> it's quite 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 nice to, to to have an opportunity to sort of go through some of the stuff that we do. Um, the the very first thing we always try and make sure. Um, it's certainly in in the EU and in the UK where the the general data protection regulation, which some of your listeners are, are probably familiar with, if they do any work in in the EU or the UK, uh, a lot of that is built. People often think of it as a security based thing. How do we keep it secure? How do we encrypt this? How do we do? It? It's actually more focused on purpose what are you actually using that information for and it's amazing when you actually start to sort of scratch the surface of what people are thinking about there's obviously the the, the you know the big ticket items of what we're going to use this to to provide direct care we're going to use it for you know understanding the healthcare system but the more you delve into it and and this is a, a symptom of um big data and, and people realizing that once they've got access to all of this data there are some really exciting really valuable things that can be done with it and the art of the possible sometimes only becomes apparent when you realize what 
is available to you and you don't necessarily know what's available to you until you've collected it. But what we really try and delve into with people is what purposes are you planning to use this data for? And because if you're not sure about what you're going to use it for, you're not going to be able to explain that to patients. And as we sort of touched on earlier, if you can't really explain it to patients and service users and, and, and clinicians and, and the people who are actually going to you know, have their data processed or be, be right at the pointy end of this stuff, um, it's very difficult to build that trust. And I think a lot of this distrust, as I mentioned and alluded to earlier, uh, comes from a lack of clarity around that. And again, some of that is is uh, we, we can't get away from the fact there have been some fairly high profile data breaches or abuses of, of, of data that's been collected um, you know, what, what, you know from from things like Cambridge Analytica, you know, and and, and stuff like that. Where people, this the news love a good data breach story as well, so they, they do tend to be quite high profile, and and people are nervous about it. But there is a big element of information security, making sure the information you've got is protected from unauthorized access. But then this idea of purpose is also around what are you expected. What are you expecting to do with it? What what are the authorised uses of that data? How are you going to use it and who might you share it with or make it available to or, or what might you do with it in the future? So focusing on that purpose side of things, almost as important, if not more important to a degree, as keeping the information secure because there's no, no good keeping it secure if you're then going to go and use it for a load of things that people are going to find unpalatable. It's a very, very good point. I think that oftentimes we forget about that that purpose part. Um, so thank you for, for bringing that up. I, I might just say, which, so how I came to start the business, LaQuinta, was I was um, progressing commercial deals for health technology companies. And quite often when I came up to closing a deal, I wasn't able to because the information governance elements that I was sometimes being assured by the technology companies had been dealt with, hadn't been dealt with efficiently. So um, I'd worked with Adam on a couple of projects where he'd been reviewing uh, information governance elements for the healthcare pr um, providers or the hospital side of things, if you like. And Adam has got a very kind of proactive and can-do uh, attitude towards information governance because the laws aren't there to stop information being used. They're there to make sure they're used for the right things. And that's what our clients, I think, find very valuable is that we can advise on the right way through this. There are There are simple and efficient ways to get the permissions right to ensure that the data that you're collecting can be used in AI or machine learning to further develop your product with all of those correct agreements put in place. And, and you know, Adam is very can do and not computer says no, and the rest of his team are as well. So we find that makes all the difference because <laughs> generally information governance people don't always have the best of reputations because um, sometimes people feel that they get in the way. Yeah, they, they sometimes can be perceived as blockers <laughs> um who knew, the exact... knew laquinta that information governance could be so uh, sexy and interesting hey right or that it was such an international language in terms of how they're how it's perceived i think that's that's that yeah it, it's you know cross crosses crosses borders that that reputation our reputation proceeds yes but i mean i think that's why it's so important for you know any companies out there startups that are looking to get into the space to understand that there are organizations like yourselves that can support them in a way that opens up the possibilities instead of shutting them down um because you know looking at this you know from someone who doesn't know a lot about it it can just seem like such an undertaking never going to get my tech out there it's never going to help people 
people. Um, but, you know, having the right consultants and experts um, on your team to to kind of open up those pathways is just so critical. And I, I regularly have this conversation with people. It's it, it, when it does come to sort of finding a way through these things, it's rarely a case of no, you can't do that. But it might be a case of not quite the way you thought you might do it. And so we can really bring that expertise and insight into ways in which you can achieve the same outcome, possibly via a different route. That means actually you're then, you know, you know, towing the line in terms of what what the law permits and and what it allows and what it requires you to do. But yeah, definitely a case of uh, you know how you do it is. Uh, probably the most important thing rather than what you're trying to achieve. And so getting that bit right and getting that right, you know, get, getting the, the avenue right that to, to, to get there is, is, is key, I think. Yeah. And that's why it goes back to what Lyndon said earlier, you know, thinking about these things, bringing in these experts at the very beginning um, is the key to success and getting to market um, in a timely manner. Get those foundations right. Absolutely. Build, exactly. build on those strong foundations. <laughs> Exactly. Well, I'm going to we're going to close out with um, with a question about what excites us. Um, so as we look towards the future, what health tech innovations are you most excited about in terms of the impact that they could potentially have in the future of healthcare? So from our perspective, we're working on a really exciting project with Cambridge University and a professor from the Alan Turing Institute, as an example. Uh, and we, we've been helping build some uh, ISO 13485 compliance software for them. So they've developed uh, an algorithm within the lab at Cambridge University, which essentially you, you feed it MRI scans and you also feed it some clinical data called a mini mental test, simple questions such as what year is it or um, who's president or uh, what day of the week it is. And, and, and the algorithm can accurately prognose and diagnose uh, not only uh, what sort of dementia it is, but also the likely uh, prognosis, so how quickly that dementia is likely to accelerate. And that's a really good example of something that's coming out of an academic space and 100% deserves to find its way to clinic very quickly. It's, it's validated as an example. And we're seeing more and more products like this in the health technology space, which, you know, is just going to give people a, a far more accurate picture of where their healthcare is and where it might go, what their quality of life might be over time. And, and I think that's important from my perspective, uh, from working frontline in healthcare. This isn't about fixing everybody. This is about... Um, this is what my clinical picture is going to look like and, and, and how I can make the best of it over the coming years. It's about quality of life. Yeah, that knowledge is powerful. powerful. I mean, imagine if you know that information about your, your, your outcome um, and what your future looks like, how you could better live that, that life that you have. I mean, that's amazing. I, I, yeah, absolutely. I'm not sure everybody would want to know LaQuinta, but that's fine because patient choice is involved in that journey, right? Exactly. There is choice um, and you have those options. But for those who want to know, I mean, I think that that's that knowledge could be quite power, powerful for them. So much of this comes back to putting patients in charge of all of that and you know, involving them as and being an active, active part of their healthcare and, and their healthcare management and you know, ultimately living healthier lives for longer. That's what you want. And you know, it is about that quality of life more than anything else. And so anything that can be done to put more information, you know, more power into the hands of patients to, you know, to to, to be able to manage their healthcare more proactively, I, I 
I think is always great. And just in general, Lyndon and I are both massive technology advocates. We we love a good a good tech chat, don't we, Lyndon? We do. And, uh... we do. We like chewing the fat, as it were. I, I would just go on to say that something that I've experienced from working with patients frontline is the more knowledge people have, the more in control they feel. And I think that that's technology's probably biggest asset going forward. You, you know, yes, it's awful to find out that you have a, a, a troubling diagnosis, but what's twice as bad is to know that somebody's sitting on a result that you don't have, that somebody else has for several weeks, or to be knowing that somebody has a result that you could, if you chose, act on using private healthcare or intervene in a different way. And I, I, I just really, really strongly believe that um, it's it comes down to human rights really you know that if that that information is available it should be shared with patients um, and technology is a great facilitator for that well thank you both so much for speaking with us today Um, I have really enjoyed the conversation and I'm sure that there's so much you know so many tidbits in this um, episode that will help so many people as they kind of look to innovate and create new technologies, and as they look to embrace the technologies that already are out there. Um, To our listeners, if you've enjoyed our conversation, please rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast wherever you're listening. Um, Adam and Lyndon, can you share with our listeners where they could learn more about Eightfold? Of course, uh, at our website, which is at www.8foldgovernance.com. Uh, there are plenty of links on the website if you would like a conversation or consultation with us to, to, to look at how we can support you with whatever you're trying to achieve. Awesome. Thank you. And for more content around key issues in the clinical research industry, please follow MD Talk and MD Group on social media. Um, you can find us on LinkedIn by searching MD Group or feel free to visit our blog at mdgroup.com. Thank you so much for listening. And until ni- next time, be well. Mm-hmm.